I'm going to talk to you a little bit from a book that I wrote. Now, I talked to you last night from the first of that trilogy called The Cross, One Man, One Tree, One Friday. But this one's called Gone, One Man, One Tomb, One Sunday. And I'm going to speak particularly about what happened from the time he said it is finished until that stone got rolled away because nobody talks about it and it is one of the most powerful truths in your Bible and it is very, very, very apropos for where we are right now. Father, bless everyone. Don't let them get distracted by their uh, Easter Sunday pot of beans boiling over right now, their cake being in too long for tomorrow. Just let them lock in here with me right now, Father, and let's change some lives. I dare you to tell everybody around you, let's change some lives. I used to say slap them a high five, but we can't say that anymore. So we're going to change some lives. Let's talk about it now. There on the hills of Judea, a new Sabbath had just begun. For six torturous days in Jerusalem, Jesus Christ carried out the work of redemption. He fulfilled every prophecy at every turn. Now that work all culminated, as we know, in the grueling sixth day. Now that day is completed, the heroic and Herculean work of redeeming lost, dying, depressed, depraved humanity is done. The author of redemption had ceased from his labors. Just before he expired, he lifted his head and the sixth thing that he proclaimed, it is finished. Your Bible said he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Now came the seventh day, the day of rest. Silence. Absolute, abject, deafening silence ruled in the garden and its lonely little tomb on the hillside, stillness, hush and stillness presided within, around the sepulcher that cradled our linen-wrapped precious Lamb of God. The Sabbath sun had climbed Judea's green eastern hills cast its long, long shadows across the stirring city. Now for Jerusalem's many Romans and hundreds of thousands among the far-flung diaspora who had gone up to Zion there to observe the feast of unleavened bread, this was a sacred day of rest. This day's meals were arranged the day before. That's why it was called Crucifixion Day, the day of preparation. He had prepared a body. If you think back to Isaac, 
he had prepared himself for a lamb. He was prepared. It's scarcely been 24 hours since Caiaphas, the high priest, was at Pilate's, the Roman overlord, doorstep, prodding him to condemn to death this Galilean wonder worker. Reluctantly, Pilate agreed to the religious order's demands. Yet here they were on Pilate's doorstep once more on that Sabbath, Saturday morning. It's recorded in your Bible and mine, Matthew chapter 27. The next day, following the day of preparation, the chief priests, the religious folks, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the doctors, gathered before Pilate and they said to him, Sir, now we remember that this deceiver said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, they begged Pilate, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and then go tell the people he was risen from the dead. The last deception will be worse, said they, than the first. Oh, Pilate granted their request, Matthew 27, 65. Go ahead, you have a guard, said he. Secure it as you can. Now to a Roman military mind and man, that term, a guard, didn't mean one. It meant a quartet of armed, uniform, Roman, combat-tested veterans, a metal seal bearing the insignia of the Roman government was affixed to the stone that barricaded Jesus' tomb. At the seam, they would pour melted wax. They'd stick a chalk block stone wedged against the larger stone so that any disturbance or movement of that stone would be immediately revealed by the cracks in the hardened wax. Now, these men knew that the penalty for them falling asleep was death. So they settled in for the next several hours they boasted, they lamented, they let loose with every profanity known among their ranks. Idle chatter, homesick soldiers, defiled stillness of the garden where the body of the Son of God had been laid. Now, in reading and reading and reading over again the gospel accounts, it's easy for me to wonder why in the world were the disciples of Jesus Christ so utterly shocked at his death? And why were they so painfully slow to realize he would rise again? Listen to this. Let me give you a few verses 
How about uh, Matthew 16, 21, Mark 8, 31, Mark 8, 32, Mark 8, 33, Luke 9, 22. Listen to what all of those references say. Jesus speaking to his disciples, your Bible says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples, number one, that he must go to Jerusalem. There he must suffer many things from the elders, from the chief priests. Thirdly, Jesus said to them, he would be killed. And fourthly, he said to them, on the third day, I'm gonna raise from the dead. Jesus had told them over and over and over and over that he had to go to Jerusalem, that he would be tried by the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Romans, that he would be put to death and that he would be raised to life again on the third day. I wonder how many things Jesus has said to us that we don't seem to get. The day following the crucifixion, Saturday, Jesus' enemies seemed to be more aware of his predictions than did his friends, which prompted their early morning trip back to Pilate now and drove their urgent request for a guard at the tomb. Now, here it is, Matthew 27, verse six to three. Sir, we remember that deceiver saying, listen, I've given it to you once, I'm gonna give it to you again. They went back and they said to Pilate, this guy's a liar, and while he was still alive, he said plainly that in three days he would raise from the dead. So they asked for four Roman soldiers to guard that tomb until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal him away and the end of the thing would be worse than the beginning. It seems every mention that the Savior made to his followers regarding the impending sacrifice, they did what we all do. They just rationalize it away. When that headache comes and the Holy Ghost says, rebuke it in the name of Jesus, instead we reach for a bare aspirin. When the Holy Spirit prompts us Invite somebody to your home to watch Saturday Night Alive from World Harvest Church with Pastor Rod. And you say, well, I'm very busy and they probably wouldn't want to come anyway. Let me move on to the number one question that I think should be revolving in the minds of every believer, which until probably for 95% of believers to this moment remains masked. I'm gonna take the mask off. I dare you type in those comments, take the mask off. Here's the question. I'll look over here to Brother Wendell Lowe, great preacher. Here's the question, Dr. Lowe. Where was Jesus on Saturday. Where was he? Was there anything 
that he could have been doing on that day? Well, we know his activity on Friday. His work was visible. Heaven saw it, earth saw it, and the darkened regions of the underworld saw it. That man of God, the son of God, hanging between heaven and earth. Hell was a witness to what happened on the top of Calvary's hill on a cross with the furious love of Almighty God intersected with our broken and shattered hearts. Likewise, every saint that's got a Bible, you got one, don't you? Know what Jesus did the next day, sometime after midnight, but before the rising of the sun. Numerous witnesses saw his movements. They reported his words. But none of that happened about Saturday. We know that his body was lying quiet and still. Those hands that had wiped the blindness out of Bartimaeus' eyes folded. Those eyes that would pierce through a man's soul are closed. Those feet that walked on the water lie limp and cold and stiff. We know the Roman guards are biding their time just beyond that massive stone barricade at the entrance of that tomb. But here's the question, where was his spirit? I know where his body was. I've been there. Dr. Lowe, I've walked in that tomb. I've seen the place where they hollowed it out because his body was too long for that borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. I've been to that tomb. I've been to the graveside of John F. Kennedy. I've been to Dr. Martin Luther King's graveside. I've been to Smith Wigglesworth's graveside. They're all conspicuous because of who's there. But that one I went into at the bottom of the brow of Calvary, just outside a bus station in Jerusalem now, is not conspicuous because of who was there. It's conspicuous because of who is not there. But we know his body was there. So how did Jesus spend that Sabbath on Saturday? Was his spirit in that tomb? Was his spirit in heaven? Was his spirit lingering in the earth? Was his spirit in hell? I'm going to answer that question for you. I'm going to go way back to something called the Apostles' Creed. Now, there was also the Nicene Creed. Let me give you some words from the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ. I dare you, wherever you are right now, to say it. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, and descended into hell. That's the Apostles' Creed. We don't understand much about creeds. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have recited that for centuries. In fact, they never gathered together unless they recited the Apostles' Creed. 
It was created to remind the faithful of the fundamental basic doctrines of the faith. My great God, how we need those back in the church. In the ancient world, when the vast majority of converts to Christianity were illiterate, they had no access to a Bible, especially one in their own language. The creeds of the church were recited every time they got together, be it in a house or in the marketplace or in a synagogue, wherever they would gather, they would recite the Apostles' Creed from memory. It was a guide for doctrine, a guide for truth, a guide for protection from doctrinal error and ravening wolves preaching false doctrine. Woo! In the original Latin, it said this way, he descended into hell. Another question. Did Jesus' spirit plummet into the darkened, cavernous underworld of the regions of the doomed and the damned souls in hell while his body lay still in that tomb? Listen to me. John Calvin was in agreement with Thomas Aquinas that Jesus descended into hell prior to his resurrection. The great reformer Martin Luther in the first pulpit that was ever built on German soil plainly stated that Christ descended into hell. Charles Spurgeon further clarified the subject saying, I think that Jesus Christ went into the world of the separated spirits. Jesus, spirit, are you listening? Jesus, spirit, oh God, not his body had to be somewhere. The time between his death and his resurrection, which we celebrated on Good Friday, and then we're going to celebrate tomorrow morning, his spirit Nothing in scripture. Oh, I need to bring sound doctrine to the body of Christ. Nothing in scripture ever suggests that any person's spirit sleeps or goes dormant. So let's define our terms. Throughout the Old Testament, Ashton, have they left me or are they still with me? All right. Whoo! I'm preaching myself happy. I'm <laughs> telling you that. Dr. Lowe, I feel like you're a, you're a worthy student. Old Testament scripture after Old Testament scripture after Old Testament scripture. Talk about Sheol. Sheol. S-H-E-O-L. It was the collective abode of the dead, both the righteous and the wicked. Sheol was divided into two mm, domains or compartments, we could say. One was paradise. You remember that, Abraham's bosom. The gathering place for God-fearing, righteous 
people. Secondly, a place of torment for the unrighteous dead. Here and here. Now Jesus made reference in his earthly ministry to Hades, the realm of the dead souls. Hades was interchangeable in the Aramaic and the Hebrew with Sheol. So they're one and the same. English Bible translations, in fact, translate both Sheol and Hades as hell. Jesus presupposes and features these two separate compartments linked in the realm of the dead. Luke 16, you remember it. It came to pass that a beggar died and was carried by the angels, where? To Abraham's bosom. The rich man died also and was buried in Hades. Listen, being there in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham at a far distance and Lazarus in his bosom. So he cried out from that tormenting place, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that old beggar, to dip his finger in water and cool my parched tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Show Hades. It's a temporary place where souls are kept as they await the final resurrection and judgment at the throne of God. Revelation chapter 20, at the great white throne judgment. Your Bible indicates a clear distinction between Hades, a temporary place of torment, and the lake of fire. These are not the same. One is not permanent, the future one, the lake of fire, is permanent. Jesus, <laughs> I might take off running around this tabernacle, y'all, you better hold on, because this thing's about to turn in two minutes. Jesus descended into hell, meaning he entered the realm of the dead, which contained both Abraham's bosom or paradise for the righteous dead and a prison involving unrelenting torment for the unrighteous dead. Psalm 1610, the sweet psalmist of Israel, David writes, for you will not leave my soul. Now this is a prophetic announcement concerning Jesus on Saturday. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, hell, translated in most of your Bibles, nor will you suffer your godly one to see corruptions. Let me give you two things from this. So Jesus would, of necessity, had to enter Sheol so that he could not be left there. Does that make sense? So he had, he had to go there lest he could not have been endangered to be left there. And the father, look at the last part of the verse, the father would not allow his body to undergo corruption or decay. Are you ready? In Jewish law, 
death and decay of a body began on the fourth day. So if he's not going to see corruption, if he's not going to allow his body to see decay, he would have to get up from the dead before the fourth day. Either the first day, the second day, the third day. Now Peter quotes David as proof of what I'm telling you in the New Testament in Acts 29. He would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foresaw this and spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not abandoned to hell, nor did his flesh see corruption. Here's another clue. The thief on the cross. He looks over at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your glory, into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, what did he say? He said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me, where? In paradise. What did the Son of God do that silent Saturday? Ephesians 4 tells you. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean other than that he that ascended descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also he who ascended far above. The heavens that he might fill all things. I'm just about finished. Paul's referencing Psalm 6 to 8. This Psalm of David is a war song. <laughs> That's what Clint Brown and I became famous or infamous doing because all we sang were war songs. Hallelujah. Joshua people taking the land back. This is a war song. In it, God is portrayed as a victorious warrior king who possesses thousands upon thousands of chariots and in the 18th verse leads captivity captive. Here's the picture again. The victorious king receiving spoils of war from the enemy that he has defeated and then passing them out to his subjects. Watch this. Colossians 2.15 says, concerning Jesus, having disarmed and dethroned authorities and powers, Jesus made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in his cross. This is a Roman, triumphant, lavish victory parade, a procession showcasing the spoils of war as Rome's cheering throng shouted high praises. In that parade were the shackled subjects that they had defeated in war. And the very last one, saving the best for last, 
the king of that realm who had been conquered by the mighty Roman army was placed in chains and drug in front of the people so they could see the might of Rome. This is what Jesus accomplished on that cross. This is what he accomplished in his sacrifice, in his ensuing victory over death. He made a public display of every devil and every demon and darkness. Oh, I can't preach. I'm just supposed to be teaching you. Manifesting absolute mastery he did over every one of them in a spectacular demonstration of his overwhelming power. This is why Jesus could rightly say, just before he disappeared out of their sight, right immediately before he ascended back to God, Matthew 28, 28, all authority, said Jesus, in heaven and earth has been given to me. Luke, that meticulous, <laughs> he, he was baptized in the phronesis wisdom of God. He paid great attention to small details. He was a great historian, and Luke makes it very, very clear that Jesus' spirit, let me encapsulate it for you, Jesus' spirit left his body the instant he gave up the ghost. He descended into paradise, or Abraham's bosom, the righteous side of Sheol, within the domain called death. And while he was there, he made some type of a proclamation or announcement, and when I get to heaven, I'm gonna let him rehearse it in my ears. He made an announcement to the imprisoned spirits in that place. He'd soon lead the righteous souls in Abraham's bosom into the presence of the Father at his resurrection. And those unrighteous souls in Hades would be left behind remaining in their torment until at the white throne judgment, they will have to be brought out of there to stand before the white throne judgment seat of Christ and then be cast into the lake of fire. Now let me make this clear. Jesus did not descend into hell having anything to do with his atoning work. He said, it is finished before he left that cross. The blood was sufficient. Tetelestia, that's what he said, one word. English renders three words for one. It is finished, tetelestia. A declaration that all was accomplished all that nothing was lacking, everything had been supplied, the breach had been healed, the debt had been fully paid and satisfied. Shalom, nothing broken, nothing missing, nothing lacking. Could you give the great God of glory praise because he led coronavirus, COVID-19 captive 
He led every sickness and disease, every pain and malady that attempts to torment your body. He led it captive, triumphing over it in his cross. I bind every sickness, every pain. I bind the spirit of lack. I bind the spirit of fear. I bind the spirit of depression. You were defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. I announce your freedom. I announce your liberty. I announce your joy. I announce your victory. Join, join the parade. And way back there at the end of the line, Satan is defeated. That devil is defeated and Jesus Christ is Lord. I hope he's your Lord. I hope you know him as Savior. If you don't, pray this prayer, Lord Jesus Christ. I welcome you into my heart. I was born a sinner, but you defeated sin. By your sacrifice on the cross, I can have eternal life. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. I accept you. I believe in you and I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Amen. You're as sure for heaven as if you were already there. Type in those comments right there. As so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds did last night. Type in there just the word saved. Just the word saved. And when you do, I'm going to send you absolutely free a beautiful book called New Direction. It'll bless your life. Now stay right with me for a moment. Three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. God declares in his word three times a year, come before me and do not come empty handed. Everybody has something. If it's $10, if it's $100, or if it's $1,000, for those of you during this Passover resurrection season that give a gift of $100 or $1,000 or $50, I have very, very, very special gifts for you. 2020 is symbolized by open outstretched hands, Jesus wants you to know he's your everything. If he, get, if he spared not his own son, how much more will he give you all things that pertain to life and godliness? So I have a beautiful, beautiful sculpture of open outstretched hands. You'll love it. You'll cherish it for everyone that sows a gift of $1,000. Whatever the Holy Spirit speaks to you to sow right now, remember you're obeying the command of God. This time of year at Easter, bring a beautiful, beautiful gift and offer it to the Lord Jesus Christ as a praise for his unspeakable sacrifice. I'm gonna release you to do that in just a moment because on some of the platforms you have to leave to go do that. 
Hey, I thank you for allowing me to share this word with you tonight because it's just been burning in my belly. I hope it blessed you. Hey, thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, I want to invite you to tell someone in your life about the podcast. Hope you'll do it today. Head on over to iTunes and leave a review. Share it on your social networks for me. Really helps me get the word out. I'd love for you to connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. No easier way for me to minister to you every day and throughout the day and for us to join together in faith as God moves in and through your life. You can find links to all my pages at rodparsley.com. God bless you now, and I hope you'll listen again soon.